Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, During the first year of his presidency, the cabinet, which is a group not explicitly in the Constitution, uh, consisted of the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of War, Henry Knox, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph. Um, not a group of shrinking violets, um, people with uh, forceful personalities and actually very different um, philosophies of what the government should be. Tom, what do you think about how Washington was able to handle some of the conflicts that he faced within his own cabinet? So if we can uh, steal Doris Kearns uh, Godwin's phrase, a team of rivals, uh, this was certainly uh, a team of rivals. And the Jefferson-Hamilton feud, um, I think, at the end of the day, led to tragic consequences down the road, not involving Jefferson, but certainly involving Hamilton. Um, They had very different philosophies on a national government style, and I think they manifested themselves around a national bank Uh, Hamilton believed in a strong uh, federal government, national government, requiring a national bank and foreign loans to function, whereas Jefferson believed government should be primarily directed by the states uh, with yeoman farmers, uh, I guess living in Valhalla, uh, kind of (laughs) yoked oxen. Um, But uh, nevertheless, he did not believe in that more of a federalist system. The... um, Perhaps uh, Washington, the way Washington handled this was he he did uh, ask or at least try to get them to um, bury their hatchet. They never did. And it got worse and worse. And uh, Jefferson eventually resigned from the cabinet, I believe, early on in Washington's second term. So um, the management of that was, for from Washington's perspective, was to not manage it. And that's actually a leadership style too. And uh, originally I thought that that portended a really poor leadership style, but the more I thought about it and the more I researched it, he was able to stand above it, not intercede directly, um, although he did once again ask them to bury the hatchet and, and reconcile, but they both brought great strengths to the cabinet, and he was able to have a cabinet, although only four men originally, to um, to advise him. And he had some of the most talented people in the United States. And Hamilton's National Bank uh, was really a leading financial institution uh, in the world uh, at that point in time. Washington, excuse me, Jefferson's foreign policy, uh, I think, probably tended to to go a little bit more towards the pro 
revolutionary France than Washington was comfortable with, yet he allowed Jefferson to, to really pursue that policy as well. So it was, it was a, seemed to me a situation where he brought in incredibly top talent. He allowed them to manage the way they saw fit. He did, at the end of the day, support Hamilton and the bank. Uh, I think having a central bank's a good thing. So in my <laughs> mind, that's that's something that was positive. It was certainly cutting-edge economic theory and policy in the 1790s. So uh, I thought that was something uh, positive as well. And here I always thought you were a Jacksonian populist. <laughs> One of the things that I think he did miss a trick on was uh, he basically didn't talk to John Adams, his vice president. The uh, the role of vice president was has changed over the years. Um, for the initial phase, it was simply the, the runner-up for uh, president, which I guess since uh, Washington was unanimous, I'm not sure how they picked Adams, but uh, maybe it was just a separate ballot. I'd have to look that up. But he never attended a single uh, cabinet meeting. Um, and I, I think Adams could be prickly, but I think uh, his advice might have been helpful. You can drop the Adams might be or Adams could be. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, you're, you're absolutely right. John Adams was one of the great thinkers of the founding fathers, uh, perhaps more comfortable as a theorist, yet he had been governor of Massachusetts, so he had actual uh, experience running running a government. Um the biography of, of Adams uh, that um, David McCullough wrote was just, I thought, stunning. And, you know, that's a different subject for a different podcast. So it was perhaps an opportunity lost uh, as well. I guess some of the other things that happened during his terms, um, I guess one of the most famous was the Whiskey Rebellion, um, which he handled with, with consummate skill. The more you look into it, the more it appears to have been just this total comedy of errors. Um, the, the setting was the, uh, the federal government needed money in part because of Alexander Hamilton's proposal that the government take over the, uh, the state's debt as well as, uh, its own or the, the, uh, confederation's uh, debt. And one of the ways he proposed to do that was an excise tax on whiskey. Um, at the time, the farmers in Pennsylvania and the Ohio River Valley had no way to get corn to market because of poor roads, and so they uh, tended to turn it into whiskey. Um, and the government uh, was going to charge them nine cents a gallon in taxes, and they would only accept cash as payment, uh, which in the rural parts of the country, cash was uh, kind of sparse. So. Um, the the farmers tended to refuse to pay. There were several instances where they would uh, tar and feather the tax collectors. There, there were several attacks on tax collectors. They'd burn down houses and so forth. Um, and then they eventually uh, threatened to attack Pittsburgh. Uh, Washington, I think, first of all, recognized the uh, their grievances were not unfounded. But at the same time, he could not allow the federal government to appear weak or irresolute. And the first time, he sent uh, he sent some emissaries to try and talk them down, talk the uh, 
the rebels down, and that didn't work. So instead, he proceeded with uh, the second best option, which was absolutely overwhelming force. He uh, got a ruling from the Supreme Court that uh, a military response was justified under the auspices of the Militia Acts. Uh, he assumed emergency power and assembled an army of 12,000 men. Um, the rebels at this point kind of understood that this was not such a great idea, and they basically disappeared. Um, the militia army rounded up several suspected rebels, um, took them to Philadelphia to stand trial. Uh, two were convicted of treason, and Washington pardoned them both. Um, I, this is a fascinating episode in part because it reaffirmed the authority of the federal government in an almost indirect way. Um, but I, I think Washington's handling of it was absolutely masterful. I agree, Richard. And there's a couple of other points that I would like to raise uh, around leadership and his leadership in this. Uh, this is uh, one example of, of leading by example. Uh, Washington initially, for sh admittedly a short time, took command of the army. So you had the president of the United States, the commander in chief actually leading an army for the first time uh, and only time in U.S. history and the last time. No, the last time. Uh, but then uh, he gave his command to Harry Lee. Uh, we've talked about Harry Lee in a prior podcast and Harry Lee had been uh, removed from command uh, during the Revolutionary War after the Battle of Monmouth in New Jersey. And so uh, Lee had, had a, a somewhat distinguished political career between this, the Revolutionary War and Washington becoming president. He had actually been a, a president uh, of the United States during the Articles of Confederation. So, uh, but Washington, uh, uh, while not trusting him when he relieved him during the Revolutionary War, did trust him enough after uh, this incident to uh, give command to Harry Lee. So those, to me, uh, demonstrated a couple leadership skills. One was that uh, leading from the front and, and taking charge, and we've seen Washington do that a couple of times throughout this podcast series, but also uh, bringing Harry Lee back in as a, a very trusted advisor, trusting him so much that he uh, gave command to him to uh, put down the Whiskey Rebellion. Your your couple of your points uh, at the way he handled it in terms of preparing the country for it, uh, laying a foundation, not just uh, jumping up, uh, calling up the militia and leading them out, uh, laying down a legal foundation, and also at the end uh, when he pardoned uh, those who were uh, convicted and subject to execution, I thought showed great leadership as well. A minor footnote was that the, um, the excise tax was tax was not repealed until Thomas Jefferson was president, um, and it was probably a, a slap at Hamilton, <laughs> since it was Hamilton's policy that had enacted it. Uh, one of the great things about Washington and his, his role as general when he explicitly and constantly acknowledged his subordination to Congress um, was his, his view of the Constitution as delineating proper spheres of action. And it's probably beyond the scope to talk about the Judiciary Act, but um, it's also he repeatedly emphasized that the role of the executive was the conduct of foreign affairs. 
And I know there are a couple of instances that you'd like to talk about, Tom, uh, that occurred during his his uh, first term. I think. Actually, I think they were during his second term, but it really uh, is not relevant. Well, they were. He um, he really set U.S. foreign policy uh, for a hundred years, uh, and that was a policy of neutrality uh, that obviously changed uh, with Teddy Roosevelt and First World War and going forward into the twentieth century. Nevertheless. Um, he passed the Neutrality Act. He um, uh, there was a great, uh, 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 I guess, event during this time around uh, someone called Citizen Genet, and Citizen Genet was the representative of the French Revolutionary Government, who was the French Minister to the United States. Unfortunately for Citizen Genet, he tried to set up a series of uh, revolutionary clubs and councils in the United States. Uh, to uh, generate uh, propaganda for the French revolutionary government. And Washington viewed this as antithetical to being uh, a true neutral and had him recalled over this affair. Um, the flip side, though, is, is the John Jay Treaty. And people call it the John Jay Treaty. Uh, it was a treaty that uh, set our relationship with uh, the United Kingdom for many years forward, uh, and uh, at least until the War of 1812. J- uh, Jay is, is uh, generally vilified for, for uh, signing this treaty, but it was Washington who approved it. And, well, the Senate approved it. Washington approved it as well. And Washington realized the need that they had to have a treaty in place with Britain. Uh, Britain was the greatest power in the world at this time. And he swallowed what he thought were some uh, less than favorable positions uh, to get a treaty done. And I think that's the mark of a, of a great politician when uh, he gets the best deal he can. Uh, it may not be the most optimum, uh, but he was able to conclude a treaty with Britain through his ne- uh, negotiator, John Jay. Well, uh, one thing about the, the treaty, um, I think it was actually not a bad deal given the the weak position of uh, of America in, uh, vis-a-vis Great Britain. In, in some respects, it reminded me of the uh, Britain, Britain session of Hong Kong to China. When the op- option is the continuation of war, um, or the start of a war in that case, um, it, it really makes accepting a few minor quibbles uh, seem a lot more palatable, especially if you've been a general through a protracted war. Um, Citizen Genet was uh, was interesting. The um, it resulted in basically an undeclared naval war with the U.S. Um, in part because Citizen Genet, by the time he was recalled, the Jacobins had assumed control in Paris, and Citizen Genet probably correctly assumed that he had a date with the guillotine if he actually went home. So he asked for asylum and was granted it, uh, despite his prior activities. Um, we've we've seen this over and over with Washington the uh, the ability to be magnanimous in in victory um, uh, certainly recurs as a theme. Um, I guess the other thing about his role in foreign affairs and not just foreign affairs but the proper scope of government has to be his his farewell address. Um, what what are your thoughts on that one, Tom? Richard, this uh, this document, uh, this speech, uh, I think is still uh, taught today. He uh, he didn't lash out, but he warned against regionalism, partisanship, and foreign entanglements. 
Um, I think those are probably still pretty good words today. Um, never get in a land war in Asia might be a direct fantasy. <laughs> uh, at least you may never want to get in a five-sided battle. that has been going on for 2000 years in the middle East. Um, so um, it was a, I thought a great end to his uh, term. He showed clear clarity of purpose with his speech, which is also a trait of leadership. We talked about, is leading from by example and from the front in terms of the whiskey uh, rebellion. Um, the third point I'd like to raise is he focused on the work, not the prize. He answered the call to be the first president of the United States. Uh, many believe the office was designed specifically for him. He, uh, uh, the person that went to offer him the position after um, he was elected. Uh, from the con- from the representative from the Congress, uh, was still not sure he would take it. And indeed, uh, there were some poignant words from Martha Custis after he left when she wondered if he, she would ever see her husband again uh, because of the vicissitudes of travel and his age at that time. So uh, the farewell address to me seemed to just be put the exclamation mark on both terms as a leader. Uh, he didn't I guess he did ride off into the sunset, but he left us with a legacy that we can still study today, still learn from today, and still be inspired from today. That's the most famous part of it, um, the part on foreign affairs, because it's been so prescient. But he also talked about the dangers of political parties and uh, what, what they used to call faction. And I think that has also turned out to be remarkably prescient, if, uh, if ignored, and, of course, his, his opinion on foreign affairs has been ignored for the last century and a quarter or so. I don't know how you feel about this, but I think one of the – if there is a problem with Washington, he uh, he felt so strongly in virtue and self-control, and he practiced them so diligently that I think he may have expected other people to do the same to an extent that's unrealistic. Um, I think he he felt that it was necessary if you were going to maintain a Republican form of government. Um, I think the the jury's still out on that one. I I think it's interesting that he he made that case over and over again. Maybe if I could take that and twist it a quarter turn, Richard, because uh, you're absolutely right. I think he did expect, in many ways, others to a standard that he held himself to, even if it was more difficult for them to to do so, but he also treated others with utmost respect. Uh, most notably, I would suppose, during his military career when he treated the lowest private with dignity. And uh, But he, he uh, afforded respect of visiting dignitaries from the Continental Congress when they came to see him. He respected individuals who came to the White House, uh, as was their right and their actions at that time, to actually petition uh, to the government. He treated service personnel, subordinates, um, people uh, with with that level of respect, uh, even if he did hold many of the senior leaders to a higher standard. And, and that's something I think uh, can also be the mark of a great leader as well. Well, I, I think that's a fair, uh, fair correction. But uh, certainly the, uh, you know, I, I think as, as a leader, the holding yourself to a high standard is, uh, is a good practice. Um, the requiring it in others um, certainly in a military context is probably uh, very important, especially with uh, 
respect to say courage and and uh, and treatment of the troops. But um, yeah, all in all, he's just a remarkable man. Um, there are a couple more uh, biographies of him that I still have to read, and I guess I'd need to put them on top of my stack again. Richard, I found this just to be a fascinating series. As with most of the work we've done together or podcasts we've done together, the research has been uh, a large part of the fun. But being able to discuss this with you and really highlight some of the things that we've seen that uh, perhaps we wish were in play today uh, has been equally enjoyable. I I agree. And uh, this one has, as usual, been full of some uh, surprises, uh, most of them pleasant, but all of them interesting. Uh, For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox signing off for 12 O'Clock High. We hope you'll listen in next time. This is Tom Fox. I hope you have enjoyed this special four-part podcast series Richard and I did on George Washington as much as we enjoyed researching it and bringing it to you. I hope that you will rate our podcast on iTunes if you've listened to it on that format. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you will join us again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.